Okay, so we are live for yet a, another class in this excellent series. Isaac and Rebecca, Partners in Succession, given by uh, Rabbi Silber. Uh, we are looking at the story of Isaac and gradually making our way through it, being uh, very curious and looking at all pertinent details. And we'll get right into it if you're ready, Rabbi Silber. Yes, I am. Okay, good morning. All right, let's finish up the, uh, just finish up the Akeda, and then we'll just continue. Uh, there's always more, but uh, I want to move forward. Uh, so the test, as the Torah calls it, Elohim Nisat Avraham in chapter 22 in the first Pasuk, and apparently Avraham has passed the test. He has, uh, one might say, perfectly fulfilled the command as evidenced by the fact that the language of command, God's threefold command of to go and take and sacrifice, was initially fulfilled as it were in the beginning of the chapter, when Avram takes and goes, and he cuts the wood for the sacrifice, and then later, in the 13th Pasuk, after he's told by this angel, God's representative not to sacrifice Yitzchak, don't do it. And Avram looks up, in verse number 13, he sees a ram, uh, I'll get to in a minute, and but no, we have three verbs, exactly what God had commanded. And the sacrificial object is this ram that Abraham sees on his own. He's not commanded to bring the sacrifice. He understands that that was God's intention. He understands, I argue, that the ram is in fact both not Isaac on one hand and is Isaac on the other being a sacrificial substitution. And that itself is the way to reconcile the contradiction within God's own words. Because God had said through Yitzchak, the covenant will be realized. And then God says, sacrifice him. How do you resolve the contradiction? And the resolution of the contradiction is the sacrifice. The Midrashim have other resolutions, but the simple pshat, I think, is the sacrifice is the resolution, which means that in reading the Akeda, the sacrifice, uh, the sacrifice is, is central to the story. The sacrifice is also the place of sacrifice, is also the place that Avram names, and that is to say the, the place that God chooses. Hashem Hashem which today is called the place in which God is seen. So it means that. Avram has succeeded in identifying God's chosen place, which means after all the journeys of Avraham, he has finally reached the point where he comes to the correct place. And that coincides with, importantly, coincides with his bringing the sacrifice, which is tachat beno instead of Yitzchak. That is to say, a reclaiming of Yitzchak. So my argument is that Avram discovers the sacred place at the moment 
that he understands his own, his own issue, his core issue in his life, core issue in his life being in the text, who shall succeed him? Who is the successor to Avram, to the great father? And the other motif is his wandering from place to place in search for the sacred place. And the two motifs come together in one act, which is the act of sacrifice. And that's why the Akedah is so significant because it's a culmination of Avram's life. When we spoke about the last few weeks is it's a culmination of Avram's life. It's the last Lechucha. It's also connected to what comes before in terms of Yishmael, in terms of Avimelech. And as I mentioned last week, it's also a culmination of the creation stories. It is in fact the replacement, the correct replacement for the chosen place in which God and the human inhabit, which is the Garden of Eden. And that in fact, the banishment from Eden at the end of chapter three, the reason the human is banished from Gan Eden, the language of the Torah is lest the human stretch forth his hand. And therefore the human might think that the human is God. And he sent out, the human is sent out of Gan Eden. And now in chapter 22, what Avram is doing at the Akedah is affirming the fact that he's not God. Because after all, if he, if he brings the sacrifice, which is his son, he has no future. And therefore he passes on into oblivion, which is, which is the main distinction between the divine and the human. One is infinite and one is eternal and the other is temporal. Avram's willingness to embrace his own finitude marks him as an appropriate one to enter into a covenant with God because he knows he's not God. And that's the point over here, that's the idea of being God-fearing. God makes the rules, God chooses the place, and the human's uh, responsibility is to try to figure out what God has chosen. So that's my uh, understanding of the Akeda. Um, we didn't get to all the details of it, but it is at, at the end of the day, a, a, a culminating story. And I'll come back to this very important point about being a culminating story. Before I get to pick up that theme of a culminating story, uh, just a couple of other details about the, the language of the Akeda. So it was interesting that the angel calls down from, to Avram from heaven, that's in verse number 12, right? In verse number 12, do not sacrifice Isaac, don't do anything. you passed the test, okay, fine. Then Avram of his own accord brings the sacrifice. In other words, he doesn't have to be told what to do. He knows, he knows what the right thing is. He knows what God wants without being told by God what God wants. That's a very important point. That I think is, in my view, the, the, the religious goal is to be in a place where you understand what God demands of you without God ever telling you. At the end of the day, of course, we all know that any code book, Shulchan Aruch doesn't deal with many issues in life. And in fact, doesn't really help us. I won't say it doesn't help us, but certainly doesn't give us any clarity about the big issues in life. 
about the relationships in life, about work, about where one lives, etc. And a million other decisions we make. There's no code book. There couldn't be a code book. There are infinite number of possibilities. Perhaps it sets us in certain directions. So the goal is to internalize the Torah, as it were, so you understand what God is demanding of you without God ever saying anything. And that's the story of Avram at the Akedah. He understands, he sees this aisle, and he understands that this is what God meant without God ever telling him. He understands it. And after Avram brings the sacrifice, we have the Malach pouring down a second time. And this is verse number, verse number 15. He names the place in verse 14. And in 15, Vayikra Malach Hashem Abraham, so once again, this Malach calls down to Abraham, second time, and says the following, The angel represents God. God says, I have taken an oath in my own name. An oath, a shvua, typically, is the invoking of God's name. Here we have God invoking God's name. Because you did not withhold your only son from me. On account of this, I bless you. So now we have a blessing. And the blessing that we find here in verse number 17 and verse number 18 is strikingly similar to the blessing that we find in the beginning of Avram's story back in chapter 12. I will bless those that bless you, through you shall all be blessed, etc. So here we have essentially, one might say a repetition or expansion of the blessing in chapter 12. But the blessing in chapter 12 came with God saying to Avram Lechocha, in the very beginning of chapter 12, God says, go to the place I will show you and I'll bless you. I'll bless you, you'll be a great nation, I'll make you a big nation, etc., etc." So we have in the second Lechocha, which is the Akedah, chapter 22, we also have a blessing, parallel blessing to chapter 12. The difference, apart from a certain expansion in chapter 22, is that the blessing that appears in chapter 22 is, is at the end of the chapter. The blessing in chapter 12 is in the beginning of the chapter. That is to say, the blessing in chapter 12 is an incentive. Go where I, to- go where I command you to go, and if you do it, I'm going to bless you. But in the Akedah, it's quite different, because in the Akedah, God does not say to Abraham, I'm going to test you, and if you pass the test, you'll be rewarded. God simply says, I'm going to test you. Or God doesn't say, I'm going to test you. The Chumash says, God says, take your child and sacrifice the child. There's no promises there of any kind of blessing. It's only after the fact, which suggests to us that the Avram of chapter 12 requires incentives. Has to be given, you know, a carrot. If you do it, there'll be blessings. But Avram's in a place in chapter 22 where he's going to obey God's command regardless uh, as regardless of blessing or no blessing, he hears what God is saying, and he intends to do what God commands him to do. So at the end of the chapter, at the end of it, we have the blessing and the amplification, 
your descendants will be as many as the sand of the seashore, as many as the stars of heaven, that we already encountered back in chapter 15 in the covenantal blessing. So here, basically, what the Chumash is affirming is the blessing of chapter 12, and specifically the covenantal blessing of chapter 15. So Avram, Avram's line will continue. It will continue through the child that he has redeemed, kind of Pidyon Aben. And here's the affirmation. And there even is, as the Medrash says, and I think it's actually in the text, because you obeyed me. So the Medrash sees in the word Ekev, a kind of hint at the third generation, which is Yaakov. There's Avram, there's Yitzchak, and there's Yaakov. And at the Akedah, this covenantal possibility is actually affirmed. Okay, so that's the first point I wanted to make. Uh, the, the, uh, it's interesting, apparently, I read that, I've never seen it myself, but I read that back in verse number 13, Achar, the plain meaning of achar is afterwards. Achar, it's a strange word. It seems superfluous in the text. And apparently, there is another variant reading of not achar, but echad. Avram saw one, a, a, single, a single ram entangled in the brush. If it's echad, then it's, it, it's good in the sense that it relates to the description of Yitzchak in the chapter, which is bincha yechidcha, your only son, your only covenantal son. So yechidcha and echad, those two are, 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 are connected. And in fact, because the ram is in fact the replacement for Yitzchak. And in fact, in thinking about the yechad and Yitzchak, bincha yechidcha, we should not forget another word that's related, presumably, to echad, and that is the word yachad. I'm not saying it's etymologically connected, but it certainly might be etymologically connected. The two walkers, two walkers one. That's yachdav. I'll get back to the yachdav. So if, if, if the girsa is echad, which we don't have here, but I've seen the argument that it is so, it fits in well. If it's achar, so let me say that achar, I have some thoughts about achar, but simply it relates to the way the chapter begins. Achar had After these things, something happens, there's a test. And one might say the culmination of the test, the culmination of the story of the achar had is in fact the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is, I can't, overstate the significance of the carbon. According to the reading I'm suggesting, the sacrifice is, is, is front and center. And the sacrifice itself, which is a ram, which is an aisle, uh, is very interesting because as previously noted, remember when they're walking to the uh, mountain, Yisroch says to his father, father, I see the wood, I see the fire, I don't see the sacrifice. Where is the lamb? Where is the kid, the lamb? Rabbi, yet, Rabbi Sil, excuse me. I was thinking Nechaz is not always mentioned. It, remind, it just somehow reminds me of the Gemara, Shnayim Ochazim 
Betalit. I don't know. It just like struck me, you know, as they're holding the uh, Karnav. It's just a. Yeah. So okay. they talk, yeah. <laughs> so and that's anyway, very complicated there. It's very complicated. The, the point I'm making about the aisle is this that the aisle, a ram, a ram is a big animal. A ram, a kid, is a small animal. If you see a kid, if you could catch it, you could take it. You could carry a kid. But a ram, you can't carry. So the point is how could you possibly? find the ram. How could you sacrifice a ram? The only way to sacrifice the ram, if the ram is entangled in the brush, is otherwise, how could you get the, take the ram? So the point is that that itself is suggestive of what the various Midrashim say about this ram, that the ram was actually put there by God. Not that God commanded Avram to sacrifice the ram, but the, the way in which the ram appears in the text does suggest to us that this ram is actually placed there, that actually the ram, it's a setup. Having said all that, the important point still is that Avram understands this on his own without being commanded. He understands that the sacrifice is both Yitzchak and not Yitzchak. Okay, now let's get back, let's just finish up the story here. There's always more. Let's start with Pasuk Yutet, verse number 19. So God says to Abraham, you are going to be rewarded. Because you obeyed me. So obedience is what's called for over here. In the words of the Torah, you're not, you are a God-fearing person. The Torah isn't, doesn't seem to be bothered by the problem that may bother us. What does it mean to sacrifice this child? The Torah, I must confess, doesn't seem to be concerned about that at all. Doesn't mean we can't be concerned about it. But in the Chumash, there's no concern whatsoever, as far as I can read. I've read this many times. And now we have the following verse, verse number 19, which is very interesting. And here, here we ask the obvious question, because Avram said earlier, he said to the two boys, he said, you know, you wait over here. And me and the Isnar, referring to Yitzchak, will go there. We'll bow down and we will return to you. Vinoshuva being the plural. We will return to you. So how come in verse number 19, it says, Avram returned. What happened to Yitzchak? Where's Yitzchak in the Passover? And not only that, by the way, that's one thing, not only that, but there's something else even more curious about this verse, namely that the Yachdav over here, which we encountered twice in the chapter, has to do with Yitzchak and Abraham. The two went together. That's a very significant expression. It appears twice about the connectedness of Avram and Yitzchak. So what does it mean to say over here that Avram returned, Yitzchak is not mentioned, even if he did return, he's not mentioned. And not only that, by Yehu Yachdav, Yachdav here refers to Avram and the two Narim. So obviously we have to understand 
Where is Yitzchak in the story over here? So let me make two points about where Yitzchak is in the story. I'll simply first point out that some people believe, and it's not impossible, that there's a kind of reference over here, suggestion, not that Yitzchak was actually sacrificed. Some Midrashim claim he was sacrificed, but, but he could have been sacrificed and maybe psychologically he is sacrificed. So over here, the absence of Yitzchak is striking because it sort of reminds the reader of the possibility that Yitzchak would not return having been sacrificed. It's true that Avram got a last minute reprieve, but that was God's decision. He was ready to sacrifice Yitzchak. So the absence of Yitzchak maybe underscores the fact that, in other words, according to this reading, Yitzchak did go back, but the text doesn't mention him because the text wants to remind us in a powerful way what might have been, what Avram was ready to do. That's one, one approach. That's one way to approach it. I wanted to make a different suggestion, though, about why Avram is mentioned and not Yitzchak. And my suggestion is the following. That what's going on in the story, actually, is not simply that Avram is redeeming Yitzchak. Avram is saving Yitzchak. Avram is, through his behavior, not through his speech so much, but through his actions, attesting to the fact that Yitzchak is the covenantal successor. And the point is that Yitzchak, as covenantal successor, can't go to Beersheba. Because Beersheba, actually, as we discussed earlier, is potentially not inside the land. Beersheba is a place at the end of chapter 21, which on one end seems to be separate from the land of the Philistines. Avram declared it as his own. On the other hand, we're not told he leaves the land of the Philistines. Avram, we're never told Avram leaves the Philistines. And on the contrary, the last verse is by Yagar Avraham, Bieretz Plishtim Yamim Rabim. And as such, Yitzchak, who is now in fact Avram's successor, he has assumed the role of patriarch through the Akedah, and at least in a, in, a, in, a, in a symbolic sense. And I'll come back to this very important point. Yitzchak cannot go back to Avram's Beersheba. And in fact, what's most interesting is that Beersheba appears later in the Chomish in terms of Yitzchak. We're told in the story of Yitzchak in chapter 26, Yitzchak goes to the land of the Philistines. And in that story, he says Rivka's his sister. Maybe someday we'll get there. And there's a whole business over there. And Yitzchak's very successful in the land of the Philistines, even though there's a famine. He plans, he reaps a hundredfold and the Philistines are jealous of Yitzchak. And Avimelech says to Yitzchak, Lech chapter 26, verse number 16, Lech leave. You become more powerful than, than we are. So essentially, Avimelech throws Yitzchak out. Later on, at the end of the chapter, Avimelech comes to visit Yitzchak with his general. And Yitzchak says to him, why have you come to me, says Yitzchak. Well, Yitzchak can't understand it. Why are you here, says Yitzchak Davi Melech. Um, let's find the verse. Madua Batem Eli, verse number 27 of chapter 26. Why do you come to me? 
ויתם שנאתם אותי ותשלחוני מאתכם, you hated me and you threw me out, ותשלחוני. Oh yes, but we want to make peace, etc., etc. So they make a deal and then they leave. And after they leave, the servants of Yitzchak say, we found water. Vayikra ota shiva. Alken shemoir be'er sheva alayom hazeh. So we have another naming of Be'er Sheva. But notice the difference between the Be'er Sheva of Yitzchak and the Be'er Sheva of Abraham. The Be'er Sheva of Abraham is in the context of the treaty with Abimelech. And it's far from clear that Be'er Sheva is not the land of the Philistines, because the Torah says that Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for a long time. But in chapter 26, the Be'er Sheva of Yitzchak clearly is not presented in the Chumash as connected to the land of the Philistines, because he was thrown out by the Philistines, as Yitzhak himself says, and as Abimelech said, Leich leave. You are hereby deported. And then they go to see Yitzhak, and they want to make a treaty. Why do you come to me? You threw me out, he says. So the, the Beersheva of Yitzhak is inside the land. The Beersheva of Avram is outside the land. And therefore, something else has happened at the Akedah. What has happened at the Akedah is that Avram has been replaced by Yitzchak. That the sacrifice is an act of replacement, an act of displacement. And here, I wanted just to mention what uh, Zvora, my wife, wrote many, many years ago, the little book from Father to Son. It's a very good book. And the argument she makes there in that book the central argument of the book. There are a hundred different readings there. But the central point, she asks the question, why is there a need, for, what is the function of the sacrifice in chapter 22? What is the function of the sacrifice? Maybe we'll, we'll revisit this at future points in our study. If we continue to study together, we'll revisit this. But the point is, the point she makes is the following, that the act of the book of Breshit's about passing on the covenant. From, as she called the book, from father to son. So the point is that the blessing is passing from Avram to Yitzchak. When the blessing passes down from generation A to generation B, two things happen simultaneously. One is that the second generation is continuing the first generation. Avram lives on through, through, through Yitzchak. If there's no Yitzchak, there's no continuity for Avraham. That's one thing that happens. But the second thing that happens is when you transfer the, when you bless the next generation, in this case, his son. So what happens is that the son displaces the father. You know, there's the expression in Yiddish. Who's, who's that over there? That's my Kaddish. You mean the expression, that's my Kaddish? In other words, that's the one who's gonna say Kaddish me means that's the one who's gonna replace me. So there's, there's always a tension. On one hand, you need the next generation to continue, but on the other hand, the next generation displaces you. So the point is this tension. How do you diffuse the tension? This is a question. It's something that Freud was very preoccupied with, but Freud fundamentally focused on the son displacing his father. Son wanting to kill his father, whatever it is, Oedipus. But this is different. This is more about the father's relationship to his son what they call the layers complex. So how does one resolve the problem? How does one allow the covenant to proceed and deal with the fact 
of the inevitable tension between the two generations, given the fact that my successor also replaces me, renders me obsolete. So in the introduction to the book, she mentions two different approaches. And I can't get into all the details of it, but the two approaches are extraordinarily interesting. There's, a, a, there's an introduction about different cultures, how they deal with this. One way to deal with it is effectively to deny the fact that this is actually my son. There are cultures in which the father, for example, is the biological father, but not seen as the actual father. In some cultures, the uncle's the father. It's a way to diffuse the tension. We have that in Sefer Breshit, by the way. We have exactly that in Sefer Breshit, a diffusing of tension by making someone else the father. Where do we have that in Sefer Breshit? We actually probably have it in two places, but I'll mention the obvious one. That's the story at the end of this book, story of Yosef. The brothers can't stand Yosef. They don't like Yosef. It's not clear that anybody likes Yosef, actually, but the point is the brothers certainly don't like him. And in fact, they try to kill him. At the end of the book of Breshit, though, Yaakov wants to bless his whole family. Yaakov's dream, hope we come there someday, is to build a, a family that everybody's included. Nobody gets excluded. That's his dream. The problem is it's not a simple dream to realize because Yaakov himself is his own worst enemy. He favors one, he favors one wife. So how do you actually work it all out? That is one of the main themes of Sefer Breshit when you get to Yaakov. The end of the Chumash, end of Breshit, that is, Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim and he wants to include Yosef, who's the viceroy of Egypt, to bless Yosef with his brothers, to include Yosef with the brothers. How does Yaakov do that? So the main mechanism Yaakov use, uses to include Yosef is to remove Yosef. There is no tribe of Joseph, by Joseph. But instead of Joseph, he has two different tribes. One is Menashe and one is Ephraim. So from one perspective, he actually gives Joseph a double portion. Joseph functions as the firstborn. He, he strips Reuven of the firstborn right. The Choriatai says to Reuven, but you can't be the firstborn because of your behavior. So I take it away from you, the firstborn of Leah, and he gives the Bechorah to the firstborn of Rachel, who's Yosef. But on the other hand, how can you live with Joseph? The brothers don't trust him. They believe at the end of Breshis, he plans to kill them. There's always tension. So the way you do it is you remove Joseph. And suddenly, the, 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 the one who shares the blessing with, 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 with Joseph's brothers is not Joseph. But rather, it's Menashe and Ephraim. And on top of that, what is very interesting and very important is that when ya Yaakov go down to Mitzrayim, he has a dispute with Joseph about who's, who's, who's primary, Menashe or Ephraim. Yosef thinks Menashe should be the primary one, right? He's the older one, bless him. And Yaakov insists on blessing Ephraim, giving Ephraim, it's one blessing but he favors Ephraim in a certain sense. It's a shared blessing, but he puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim. And Yaakov told Yosef before that, he said to, to Yosef, Ephraim uh, umnashe uh, Ephraim and Menashe are to me like Ruben and Shimon, which means 
my beloved Joseph. These are not your children. They have no father. They have a grandfather. Yes, later I'll give them back to you. But he blesses them as a father blesses his child. So therefore, what Jacob does to diffuse the tension between Joseph and the brothers is quite ingenious. And that is, he, he's saying, in effect, you are the father, but you're not the father. And that's one way to diffuse the tension. So one general approach to diffusing tension is the claim that actually the parent is not really the parent. It's somebody else who's the parent. Okay, that's one general approach. Second approach, the second approach, and this is all found in the work of a fellow named Rene Girard. The second approach, um, the second approach, he has a book called Violence and the Sacred. The second approach is that the way to solve the tension between father and son is to, is to find something else upon which to deflect the violence. He has a book called Violence in the Sacred. And the object upon which you deflect the violence to allow the relationship of father-son to survive, to exist, and the blessing to be transferred, he is a nice word for it, it's called the scapegoat. It's a scapegoat, it's a carbon. The carbon is a way to diffuse the tension. Devorah's claim, actually, one of the more interesting claims in the book is that the need for the sacrifice in Akedat Yitzchak is, it is the scapegoat. It's the object upon which you can diffuse the tension between father and son and therefore allow the blessing to proceed. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. I thought about this thought of the last 40 years about what I think of this. There is something to it, but it's actually even more clever because she plays it out in the, rack, in the rest of Sefer Breshi, but I'm not gonna get into that now, but we'll encounter it later on. And it's quite ingenious actually. And I do believe there's a lot to it. I'm not convinced it's at the center of the book, but I'm pretty convinced that it's very significant. So in any event, just to, I mentioned this now, I mean, it's interesting in itself, but I mentioned it now because it fits in very well with my understanding of the Akedah, namely that the, that the key verse of the Akedah is verse 13 when he brings the sacrifice. I, I look at it from the standpoint of the sacrifice is both the reclaiming of Yitzchak, unlike Yishmael was not reclaimed, and the sacrifice is also the determining the place. And the two things happen simultaneously only when you understand how you work your life out, how you deal with the core issue of your life, can you discover the sacred place. And this idea of the sacrifice as being essential fits in very nicely with the voters thought that the sacrifice is necessary for the transfer to take place because it's a way to deflect the potential violence, the tension between the one who's receiving the blessing but at the same time, the one who's giving the blessing passes it on to the other one, and the first person becomes obsolete. So in the story over here, I suggest, in any event, and that's exactly the point, that Avram is now yachtav with Narim, not with Yitzchak. Yitzchak's the patriarch. Yitzchak can't go to Be'er Sheva, can't go to Eretz Plishtim. In effect, what has happened on the symbolic level is that Isaac already is the patriarch. 
I say on the symbolic level, because it also has to be worked out on the, on the practical level. And we'll get to this very important point about the Abraham story having two endings. One is the ideal, the ideal ending or the idealistic ending, which is the Akedah. But then the Avram story doesn't end with the Akedah. The Avram story ends with chapter 25. He first has to bury Sarah. He's got to find a wife for Yitzchak. That's on the practical level. He has to, from a practical standpoint, make, make it clear how the blessing is going to proceed. And given the fact that when Avram comes to understand that the Akedah is that Sarah was correct, that Sarah was the one who understood how the blessing proceeds, as God said to Abraham, she's right. And even over here, because you obeyed me, but Shamata Bikoli in chapter 22 means the Akeda. But you also Shamata Bikoli in 21 when I said, listen to Sarah, obey what she says. So given the fact that that's the truth, so now, uh, Avram understands that Sarah was correct. She was my partner in destiny. And now the question is twofold. How do we mark that? How do we mark the fact that Sarah was right? And number two, if she was right, and I myself was incapable of determining the next generation, I would have given the blessing maybe to Yishmael or something. How do we make sure that Yitzhak doesn't make the same mistake I was gonna make? We have to find Yitzhak a partner who will be able to direct him and instruct him about how the blessing is going to proceed, which of course is the story of, obviously of Rivka. Yitzchok, given his own devices, it would appear plans to give the blessing to Esau. That would be a mistake. So Rivka's role will be to a Sarah who will guide the way the blessing has to proceed. So therefore, Avram still has a lot of work ahead of him on the practical level. It may be that on the ideal level, Yitzhak is the patriarch, but in order for it to work, other things have to be put in place. And mainly the next two stories are a function of Sarah. One is to attest to Sarah's role, that's chapter 23, and number chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in Breshit, is to find a replacement for Sarah. That will be Rivka. Okay, that's the work that we had ahead of us. Let me stop here for a moment, take comments or questions. Then I wanted to point out a fascinating parallel to our chapter. And the parallel, of course, bespeaks distinctions and this will lead us to continuing these, the story. And through the prism of the other story, we'll see all kinds of interesting things about these chapters. Okay, so I'll stop. Yes, speak up, Joanne. Yes? I, ask a question. I had to unmute. So right. um, I heard what you said about Beersheva and it makes me think that throughout Brayshit, you can't have two patriarchs in the same place at the same time or potential uh, covenant holders. So you have Abraham leaves Terach, Abraham splits from Lot, uh, Ishmael splits from, uh, from Yitzchak, uh, Yaakov has to leave Yitzchak, Yosef has to leave the rest of the family, that there's a geographical uh, exile or um, or non-exile of somebody that keeps potential uh, covenant holders or people in the line apart. Um, so 
I think that's another aspect of what's going on with this um, diffusion. Is uh, sure, by, by the way, as you're talking, I wanted to add something which I think is pretty central to to the Chumash, pretty central to life, which I think is basically the same thing. Um, and that is, as you say, people. The 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 problem is the the, the difficulty in in the Chumash and in life is not when people are separate from each other. When people are separate from each other, they often can get along very nicely. The problem is when people have to live together. And in point of fact, um, when you get to Yaakov, the point of Yaakov is, Yaakov is Yaakov's vow in chapter 28 is, if you bring me back to the land, I will build the bayit. Yaakov's dream is to build the bayit, and the bayit has many meanings, but among the many meanings is, a, a, a uh, structure in which different people can dwell in the same structure. And therein lies, that's the story of Joseph and his brothers, because the point is when people live together, I don't mean just family, could be family, could be nation, um, different people, different goals, different aspirations, different opportunities. And the question is, how, how does one do this? The Chumash is very concerned about this question when you come into the land. The Chumash is not about being in the land, by the way. The Chumash is, the land is an aspiration of the Chumash. The Chumash is from the standpoint of someone outside the land. That's how Sefer Breshi ends with Jacob talking about the future in the land of Egypt. And that's how the Torah ends with Moses talking in the desert uh, about a land that he will not enter. So the Chumash is about, the land is significant. It's not the, that the land doesn't matter. The land is the dream, the land is the aspiration, the land, the temple. A good part of Jewish history, Jews were not in that land. And then the question is when you are living together, okay? Uh, and you have your own society. So the Torah is very concerned about this. It's not an accident that towards the very end of the book of Bamidbar, very long chapter, deals with what the Torah calls, and it appears also in Dvarim, the Ir uh, Miklat, the city of refuge. The city of refuge, the Torah spends an inordinate amount of time dealing with the city of refuge. What do you do if someone kills somebody else in an unpremeditated way? Because what's going to happen, the Chumash understands, is violence. Because if you killed my relative, I'm going to kill you or your relative. And there's a spiral of violence that never ends. So the Chumash sets up a structure whereby we can stop the violence. So the state takes it over, and then the violence can be can be uh, curtailed. What do you do with the Levian? Another question. The Levian murdered their own brothers. That's the story of the golden calf. The Levian was sent into exile as it were. Okay, the exile is closer to the temple, but they don't, well, they don't live with the people. They're living separately. How do you deal with this group of people that is separate on one hand, but you want to stay connected? Cities of the Levian, you give them, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of rules. And there's other problems. How do you deal with, with, with intra-tribal squabbles when one tribe thinks the other tribes are trying to take advantage of them? Story of Tzalafchad's daughters. That's the last chapter of Bamidbar. What happens if the daughters of Tzalafchad marry from a different tribe? We're gonna, Menashe says, we're going to lose our land. So the Torah is very, very, very aware of the difficulty of people living together, together with the first brothers who live together, Cain and Hevel. And that or Joseph and the brothers. In the book of Genesis, on the human universal level, it's Cain and Hevel. On the Jewish level, it's Joseph and the brothers. And that's a story that we come back to all the time, Joseph and his brothers. 
including on Yom Kippur, ten, ten, the 10 martyrs, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers means there's always tension. You never remove the tension. And the question is, how do you deal with the tension? One way to deal with it, you say to separate, that's akin to the first suggestion that I mentioned in terms of how you deflect the violence. This is not my brother. This is not my son. The real, the uncle is, there are different cultures that deal with different ways. But if, but the other problem is, but if it actually is my son, if we all live together, we all want people, then there's the inevitable potential for violence. And then you need some mechanism, some way. Sacrifice is one way, deflecting it onto something else. Maybe there are other ways, etc. cetera. Uh, so that is, I think, a very fundamental issue, human issue, both in terms of families, in terms of nation, etc. when you do live together. And that's the story of the Torah, basically. The Chumash is well, well aware of the problem. Anybody else have something to say? Rabbi? Yes? Um, when you talk about Beersheva, and that Yitzchak can't go to Beersheva now, but, but he can later, he names Beersheva. Does that mean that the status of Beersheva changed, or it's not part of Eretz Pushtim anymore, that it's a different Beersheva? It sounds to me like it's, like it's a different Beersheva, actually. Okay. Sounds like a different place. Sounds like the place that he is. It's hard to know, you know what I'm saying? And these things do change. In other words, when Lov goes to Sodom, Sodom is outside the land. Because the Torah says, Avram Yashav Be'eretz Kenan, Belot Yashav Kikar Sodom. Is Sodom part of the land? Is it not part of the land? I would say there, there are these liminal lands, the land of the Philistines in general. The land of the Philistines, sometimes we consider it part of the land of Israel. And some texts, it sounds like it's, it's on the border, maybe it's outside. So I don't think that, look, the Chumash is not so interested in, in, uh, in uh, I've said many times, the Chumash is not interested very much in, in history. And I would say it's not that interested in, in geography either. It's interested in understanding how to function in the world vis-a-vis -vis other people, vis-a-vis -vis God, responsibilities, limitations. That's what the Torah is about, basically. So, so it, uses, it uses all kinds of information for its own purposes. I don't think we can draw that many conclusions. But over here, um, over here, I think uh, my take on Beersheba as with Yitzhak is a different Beersheba, because that's clearly outside the land of the Philistines. Because they, they throw them out, basically. Yes, someone else? Yes, uh, on the theme of father-son violence and its transmutation through sacrifice, uh, yes. there, is, there is another theme that is joined to this, and it's introduced when uh, we go to the well and she gives uh, the water to, uh, in a generous act, that there, there has to be introduced into the family the female generosity uh, in order to mute the violence that is possible between. And we have that with the story of Aesop, when again, uh, the violent, the father chooses the more violent uh, uh, son as, as the earlier with Yishmoel, who also was the more violent son, that it has to be a female influence in order to transmute that kind of violence into what we know to be distinctive for Jewish life, you know, we always prided ourselves with having an oil, having a, a peaceful tent and so forth. That could be so. I mean, let, I, would, I would say the following. I, I think I may agree with you, but I just want to point out that the description of Rivka 
in chapter 24 and the description of Ruth in the book of Ruth, both of them are predicated on, on, uh, on uh, Avram. Rivka and Ruth both are essentially female versions of Avram. And I, by the way, there's a third person that I would throw in there together with Rivka and together with Ruth, two heroes of ours. But in the book of Shmuel, who is, which is written by somebody, I'd love to meet this person. Um, he has somebody else in that book who is a, a Rivka, Abraham type figure. Not someone you expect. And that is found in chapter 28, chapter 28 of the first book of uh, Shmuel. And that is um, the uh, Witch of Endor, the medium, the, the Balat Ov from Endor. The description of the Balat Ov of Endor is exactly, of course, uh, Rivka, Abraham, all rolled up into one nice package. The ultimate, the gracious hostess, etc., the kind, the kindness, uh, compassionate person. That's what you have in the Book of Shmuel. The Ov in the Chumash is the ultimate idolater, by the way. Book of Shmuel, that's why the, book, the author of Shmuel doesn't care, actually, couldn't care less. Breaks all the, ex no, forget your expectations. But it is true. It could be that it's a, a more feminine quality of kindness. Uh, we, certainly, without the, without the chesed, without the kindness, the family can't, the community can't exist without it. I would say without kindness and compassion, a human being can't exist at all, without God's kindnesses, as we say so often. Right? Right? We say under the davening, right? We can't live with just, with just rules and regulations, and we can't function that way in this world. So, of course, we need compassion, we need kindness, forgiveness, and all that, without which we can't function on the personal level and on the communal level as well. I'll take one more comment now, and then, Sarah, what do you want to say? So, the Philistine king um, has recognized that uh, Yitzchak is now in charge, that when he's contacting Yitzchak, correct? I don't think that's what's driving him, actually, but that we get there, we'll see. He may think that, but um, no, he sees that Yitzhak is, yes, he sees Yitzhak's been successful. He sees no matter what Yitzhak does, and it's amazing, actually. When you meet Yitzhak at first, you say the guy's a kind of nebbish, you know what I mean? But every time he does something, he succeeds. He plants, gets a hundredfold. He digs wells, he finds water. So at the end of the day, everything he does is successful. So he's, he wants to make a treaty with this person that has a, a golden touch, basically. That's part of what's going on, I think. Uh, yeah. So from the standpoint of Avi Melech, he's a person you want to deal with because everything he does works. And they make, they, they make a treaty, Avi Melech leaves, and Yitzhak finds more water. That's Beersheba. All right, let me make, let me uh, make one. Yes, sorry. What? Uh, I just, I don't, I know you are not a hostage of this uh, Shita, but you know there is Ay Lachar Nechaz Basvach from Ur, from the time of Avram Avinu. So it's a ritual object found in cemeteries in Babylonia from 2000 BC, which is more or less Avram Avinu's time. Okay. And you recognize? I, I've never seen this before. Ay lachar nechaz basvach. Ay lachar nechaz basvach, that's true. That's for sure. Okay, here's the point. I, it's not that, I'm not opposed to that at all. I, if we have other evidence from uh, either texts or other cultures of the time, I say, great, that's very helpful. But I'm saying as a general approach, I, uh, 
tend to look at what the text says. I'm much closer to being a new critic. I look, I'm not unaware of the fact that I believe sometimes studying comparative uh, cultures can give us insights, all kinds of insights. At the end of the day, I think the, the main point is to see what the text actually says and not to assume that, you know, given the fact that we have certain uh, values, that's the value of the Chumash, to see what, 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 what emerges from the text. But the fact that there may be a, a ritual object, an ayon nechaz, okay? Uh, so I have no problem with that on, on any level, basically. And uh, actually, you could even give a little homily. I believe Rabbi, Salove, Rabbi Soloveitchik, one of his many drashot, an excellent darshan, by the way, uh, excellent, excellent darshan, talked about the human being who was, who was caught in the brush, that many mistakes that we make, actually, in life is because we find ourselves caught in, caught up in situations that we somehow we got caught up and we can't find a way to disentangle ourselves. Mm. It took place, you know, suddenly you find yourself in, in situations where you can't figure how to get out of it. That is certainly the case. But in any event, yeah, okay, thank you for that. Uh, let me just, we have a, some time left still. Let me, um, 25 minutes. Let me look at another text now with you. And we'll see how this is helpful to, towards an understanding of what's going on in these chapters. What I'm referring to is a text that I've spoken about a million times, but I want to say something new about it. And that is the following. There is a story that appears, there are actually three stories, that appear one after the next at the very end of the book of Shmuel. Chapter 24 of Shmuel, and then the first chapter of the next book, which is Kings. So the story of chapter 24, we can't get into all the details here. This will take us too far. Chapter 24 is the story when King David, it is in our canon, the way we have it before us, it is the last chapter of the book of Shmuel. It's Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bet. This is the last chapter of Shmuel Bet, chapter 24. So the story over here is that the king, who is David, says to his commander-in-chief, Yoav, he commands Yoav to go throughout all the land of Israel and to take a census. He wants to know the number of people, to take a census of the people. It's not clear what that means, the men or some of the men, but he wants to know Misparam, the size of the population. That's the beginning of chapter 24. Yoav, his general, says to the king, don't do it. It's in verse number three, says to the king, listen, God should bless you. Yosef Hashem Elam, Kahim Vachem Meyash Pramim. Keep scroll down. Um, scroll down a little right. But why would you want to do this? But David insists. So David insists. Yoav is the general. Yoav goes out and he takes the census of the people. Now you scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Keep going, scroll down. Scroll down, this is the census. Now, Yoav reports the number back, okay? He, he gives David the number. It's soldiers, basically, it sounds like soldiers. 800,000 soldiers and 500,000 from Judah. Next passage. But afterwards, after David took the census, he was bothered by this, he's troubled by this. See, they say he approached himself and he turns to God. And he says to God, I have sinned greatly, grievously. I have sinned grievously. 
please God, remit the guilt of your servant. I have been very foolish. Notice the word ma'od. So David calls this act of counting a sin, a chait. He calls it foolishness. And the emphasis is on ma'od. I am very foolish and very sinful. Please God, remit, remit my guilt. And just to get a sense of this over here, in chapter 24, earlier in the book, a few chapters earlier, in the story of David and Bathsheba, when the prophet comes to David and essentially tells him, you're guilty for the murder of Uriah and the taking of Bathsheba. And David says two words, Chatati Hashem, I have sinned unto God. Then David has to be told, but he says, I have sinned. Here it's, I have sinned grievously and I've been very foolish. So it sounds like this crime of counting the people is a grievous crime. Bathsheba, which is adultery and murder, that's a crime, sin against God. But this is very sinful. That's what they, now to get into the details of that, I'm not doing that yet, not now. But meanwhile, David's asking for God to somehow allow him to be forgiven. He gets up in the morning and there's a prophet. God, God sends a prophet to David, name is God, Gimel Dawid, and says to David, I give you three choices. You can have three choices. You can have a seven year famine. You can be in flight from your adversaries, for three months. That sounds like war. Or three days of plague. Now, you can choose. So David is given a choice. It's not a very Hobbesian choice. Famine, war, or plague. Your choice. So David responds, It's a verse that the Ashkenazim say, introducing Tachanun. I'm very distressed. I want to, I, I, I'd rather fall into the hands of God whose mercies are great. I don't want to be in the hand of a human being. So what is David's response over here? We're not getting deeply into this chapter. This will take forever, but David's response is what? He was given ABC, three choices, famine, war, or plague. What does David say? What's his answer? His answer is, God, I don't want B. God, you he, he removes B, which is war. I don't want B. So I'll leave it up to you to choose. You can choose either A or C, famine or plague, but B is out. But God, you make the choice. So God sends plague. 70,000 people die from Don to Beersheba. And that fun. There are a million questions here. Leave the questions for now. Now we have the following verse. So the angel, we saw that at the Akedah, right? Twice at the Akedah. The angel extended his hand against Yerushalayim to destroy it. But God renounced further punishment. And God sent said to the destroying angel, Rav, enough. Hold back your hand. 
And the angel was then by the threshing floor of Aravna the Yerusi. Okay, so God says to this angel, hold back your hand. One might say in that parallel to the Akeda, if the Akeda we have God saying, the angel saying to Abraham, Right? And the angel calls down Abraham, Abraham, here we have God speaking to this angel, hold back your hand. Next, next verse. When David saw the angel smiting the people, David said, Behold, I have strayed and I have sinned. Strayed and sinned. What did these people, referring to the people, this, this flock, what, what, what did my flock do? Let your hand fall on me and my father's house. And when David says that, the prophet comes to David and says, Go and bring an altar, set up an altar to God on the threshing floor of Aravna the Yibusi. Now, let me just let me just explain here. So the place upon which the place we're talking about is the threshing floor of Aravna, Aleph Resh Vav Nun Hey. Of course, in the word Aravna, we all see it, is the word Aron. And the word Aron, the Ark, is one of the dominant themes of the Book of Shmuel. The Book of Shmuel begins with the banishment of the Ark. And the question is, where is the Ark going to go? The Ark has come to Jerusalem, and now can the Ark find a permanent place in Yerushalayim? So what will find a permanent place in Yerushalayim? In the place of Aravna. So David is now told, go and bring a sacrifice, not any old place in the place of Aravna. And Aravna, the Yavusi, we are told earlier, that's the place that God said to the angel, hold back your hand. David probably doesn't know that. But God said to the angel, hold back your hand. The place of the ark, the place of Aravna, God's place, is the place where God says, do not destroy. It's a place of God's compassion. So David is now told to go to that place to bring a sacrifice. And David will go there and the plague will be stopped. And that place becomes clearly the permanent place of God's residence in Jerusalem, which we call the temple. What David is being told in effect is that now you can find God's permanent home in your city, which is Yerushalayim, right? As Jerusalem was mentioned earlier, the angel was about to smite Jerusalem, hold back your hand. And now the question is, so we have over here, one might say, David's discovery of, David's being sent to the sacred place. Why over here is David able to go to the central place? What is it about this chapter that allows David to affirm God's sacred place within David's city? If God will permanently dwell in David's city, that suggests that David's kingship is also eternal. What is it about the chapter that allows this to happen? In the case of Avram, we know what it is. Avram discovers the sacred place. At the very same time, he's able to understand how his family works. 
to affirm that, in fact, Yitzhak is the covenantal heir. Took him a long time to figure that out, but he figures it out in the Akedah, and he actually redeems Yitzhak at the Akedah, and he brings the sacrifice instead of Yitzhak at the Akedah. That's the story of Abraham. Now, what is the story of David? What does David have to do in order to be able to locate, identify, and affirm God's sacred place within David's city? So the answer is actually very simple. What David has to affirm is that David understands what it means to be king. What does it mean to be king? The Chumash says what it means to be king. The Chumash doesn't ever tell you what the king does, by the way. But the Chumash does tell you something about kingship. Because the Chumash says in chapter 17 of Tvarim, when you come into the land and you say, make me a king like all the other nations. Make yourself a king, says the Torah. You can have a king. However, says the Chumash, you can have a king. But there are two things you have to understand. One is, the king that you will choose is one that God chooses. That's A. And B, from amongst your brethren. Now, the book of Shmuel interprets that verse to mean the following that the king has to understand two things to be king. One is the king has to understand that at the end of the day, the king is God's representative. God is the true king. The king's mission is to carry out God's objectives. The one who understood that perfectly well in the very beginning of the book of Shmuel is, of course, Hannah. She describes the world as it should be a place of compassion, a place where people are secure, a place where people on the margins are protected. And the last verse of Hannah's prayer in the beginning of the second chapter is V'yitain oz lumalko, V'yarem keren mishicho, and God should give strength to God's king. So Hannah prays for a king who will see the mission as carrying out God's mission. That's the first thing. And the second thing, is The Torah is very concerned that the king be chosen from amongst the people and not just be chosen from amongst the people. The Torah says at the very end, it talks about a king. King has to write a Torah, read it. And should not see himself as more important than his brethren. That is to say, from the standpoint of the book of Shmuel, the king is a representative of the people. King is there to help the people, to move the people forward. That's what the king, to be a good king, you have to understand those two things. You work for God and you work for the people. In this chapter, that's exactly what chapter 24 is about, the last chapter. The last chapter is actually about, I'm not going to go through a catalog of the incredible nonsense written about chapter 24, nonsense. But the last chapter is about, is, the book of Shmuel in its last chapter raises this question about kingship, which is the core question of the book. But what about kingship? Can you really have a king? Because Shmuel thought you can't have a king. Shmuel thought inevitably there'll be abuses because absolute power corrupts absolutely. So there's always gonna be abuse. Can, is it kingship even theoretically possible? And the answer in chapter 24 is yes. We have an example of somebody who understands both points. Number one, that the king works for God. God makes the decisions. And that's how the chapter begins, after David takes the census. Census is a terrible sin, because the census means they're my people. 
There's no reason for a census. These are my people. And David realizes after he does it, he has sinned grievously. David turns to God, forgive me. Okay, so God sends his, his prophet. King David, you have three choices, famine, war, or plague. Tell me, what should I tell the one who sent me? Oh, king, somebody sent me. So you tell me, boss man, because the person on the other side happens to be God, wants to know what the king determines. Says David, no, 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 no. What the king determines is I'm in God's hands. I eliminate choice number two. I never want to be in human hands. But as far as the decision is made, I don't make those decisions because I'm in God's hand. So God is probably saying from heaven, okay, you passed the first test. You understand that you're in my hands. You understand I make the decisions that God is the king. Your mission is to carry out the kingship, which is my objectives. And then David sees people dying. And David turns to God and says, if people are dying, why am I the king? Destroy me and my father's house. I was, I was made king to serve the people. But if they're dying because of me, because of my census, I shouldn't be the king. Now David understands the second part of the nature of kingship. And not only that, does David fully understand his role, but there's something else here. He also was willing to give it up. He's willing to give it up. You see, the point is, destroy me in my father's house means I'm willing to step down from the kingship forever. Not just me and my father's house means no succession, no future. I'm willing to give up the future, says, the, says God to David. If you're willing to give up the future, like Abraham was willing to give up the future, that means you are worthy of entering into a permanent relationship with God. So in the case of Abraham, the discovery of the sacred place has to do with his, his core story, which is the nature of the family. And it's also about succession. It's no accident that the book of Shmuel plays off the story of Abraham in a hundred ways. And there's a good reason for that because the patriarchy and the kingship have something in common. They're about succession. So David is able to discover the place, one might say, discover the place at the moment where he understands who David is. That is to say, he understands what, what kingship is, the twofold understandings every king should have, who you work for, whom you work for, and whom you work for. You work for God and makes the, you carry out God's plan and the benefit of the people. You're here to serve the people. You have to understand that. David in chapter 24 understands it. Okay, now you're ready. Now let's atone for the sin of taking the census. You atone for the census by determining or by affirming God's permanent place. Because after all, the census in the Chumash is done via the temple. That's how you take the census. It's no accident. It's via the Mishkan. So the atonement will be via the Mishkan. That is the parallels between the Akedah and the story of chapter 24. Now, now here's what's very important and very interesting. Interesting is an understatement. What's important is this, that we expect, we found certain key parallels between the two stories, hold back your hand, et cetera, all that. 
But now, what makes it extremely interesting is that we will find many other parallels between the two stories. To the extent that it's obvious to me that whoever wrote this had the Chumash open and actually plays off the stories of the Chumash. So let's begin with this now. Let's read a little bit further uh, in this chapter 24. And then we'll be able to see, obviously, uh, the relationship to our, uh, to our to our story. We'll continue next week with our with our with our story back to Abraham. So Aravna, he's going to Aravna's threshing place. Aravna's a person. Aravna asked David, he bows low to the king. Why has the king come? Says David, to buy the threshing floor from you. I want to buy this place. I want to build a sacrifice. I want to stop the plague. Aravna says to David, Take whatever you want. Take whatever you want. Here, here's the oxen for the offering. Here's the threshing boards for the wood. Here's, you got the wood, you got the animals. It's on the house. All of this, all of this, Hakol Natan, all of this, calls him King Aravna, gives to David. And Aravna says, and God should bless you. God should accept your sacrifice. And the king says to Aravna, no, I'm not taking it for nothing. I insist on buying it. I'm not bringing sacrifice that have cost me nothing. So David buys the threshing for He buys it for 50 shekels of silver. He brings the sacrifice and the plague is stopped. And now, let me just make one comment and then we'll stop for today and this will lead us to next week, all kinds of interesting things. The parallel to the story at the end of Book of Shmuel, I'll say it even though it's totally self-evident, obviously. The parallel to the story over here where David comes to a place and the person who owns the place offers it for nothing and David insists on buying it is of course, chapter 23 of Breshit. It's when Avram wants to bury Sarah and he goes to B'nai Chet. He says, I want you to give me your burial place. And they say, you're a, you're a prince among men. No one's gonna prevent you from burying your wife. He says, really? Then set me up with this fellow named Ephron and I'm gonna pay him a full price. So he goes to Ephron, we'll get to the story. Ephron says, take it for nothing. You can have the gravesite for nothing, the field for nothing. Says Avram, forget about it. I'm paying for it. You want to pay for it, says Ephron. Okay, this is one that's going to cost you a fortune of money. So Avram pays for the place. So the two stories are obviously identical. They're not identical. They're never identical, but they're parallel stories. And what's interesting is that in the Chumash, there are two consecutive narratives. One is the Akedah's chapter 22, and the story of buying the gravesite is chapter 23. And over here in the book of Shmuel, you have the two stories, one next to the other. And I will leave you with the following question. Stuff is extraordinarily interesting. Um, I'm supposed to have my book on Shmuel coming out. Book of Shmuel, King Malchut Adam in Hebrew. The Buell book on, uh, on Shmuel. It gets delayed a couple of weeks, but it's coming out soon. And in that book, there's a lot of discussion of these chapters. Let me end with one simple observation. The two stories are parallel, which means they're similar, but then we look for the distinctions between them. 
But here's one very interesting distinction between the two stories. And that is that in the book of Shmuel, they come one after the other. There's nothing intervening between the two stories. You have the story of the angel holding back the angel's hand, followed by David purchasing the place. That's in Shmuel. In the Chumash, tw chapter 22 is the Akedah, 23, the purchase of the place. But there's something between the Akedah and purchasing the place, which is the very end of chapter 22. It's the genealogy of Abraham's brother, uh, 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 brother Nachar. The birth of Rivka is noted. So next week, we'll start with what do we make of the fact that the narrative in that the narrative in, uh, in the Chumash, our narrative, is interrupted by the birth of Rivka, whereas in the book of Shmuel, they are consecutive stories. And this will lead us to all kinds of fascinating, uh, I mean, it's nothing like it, fascinating stuff. Okay, so we'll stop at this point. I did want to remind everybody, uh, or Noah, you want to take over? What do you want to remind us? Uh, sure. So we have a number of classes coming up tomorrow evening. We are going to be continuing uh, Dr. Del Berlin's fabulous class on Shir Hashirim, the love poem of the Bible. And we also have a series of Wednesday night classes beginning, all relating to themes of universalism and particularism. So a lot of folks from the summer kollel will be joining those classes, but you are welcome to join us for one or all of them. They include, does God want other nations to keep the Torah and a Gothic history? the early development of Jewish universalism from the Bible to the rabbinic period and exploring Rabbi Sachs on the universal and the particular. You can learn more about them and sign up at our website, link in the chat. And we look forward to seeing you at as many classes as you'd like to join us for. Um, if not later this week, then next week for sure.